while I'm on my study break, we have some amazing pastors who are going to be sharing. And today is Pastor Sawyer. And all of you who heard his sermon on hell, that was like off the charts incredible. Today is going to be too. You're about to be blessed in an incredible way. Right now, Crossroads, join me in welcoming Pastor Sawyer. Well, good morning, Crossroads. Thank you so much. I already heard a Roll Tide. I'm a Bama fan, so they know that hits home with me. Thank you very much. Today, today I'm excited to start a brand new series with you all. It's a, it's a good day here at Crossroads. I'm excited to be here. I love being at church on a Sunday, and honestly, I just love this time of year. It's summer. I love the summer. I'm from the South, and in the summer, it's the most fun time of the year. You just have a blast. And in the South, I don't know about here, but we went to camp growing up. Every year as a kid in the South, you went to camp. And the camp that I went to was a camp in the Ozarks in Missouri. And this camp was wild. It was known for being kind of an extreme camp. In fact, I was even talking to a friend about it a couple of days ago. This was the kind of camp that is like if you got hurt doing something, they wouldn't call your mom and be like, hey, your son's hurt, I'm so sorry. Be like, hey, you got hurt, that's even more fun, let's do it again. Like that was the camp, that was the camp that I went to. And it was just, there was never a dull moment. It was fun, you got to be outside and be a kid again and I loved it. One activity that this camp did every year was so extreme that only the senior guys were able to do it. And so every year I went and I heard about the senior guys getting to do this activity and I never got to do it until I was a senior in high school and it was my chance. And it was crazy. What we did, we're in our cabins. They told us that we were gonna go on this adventure and we were gonna go camping in a cave, but they didn't tell us when we were gonna do it. So one morning they come into our cabin with just the senior guys. They wake us up early in the morning before the sun's even up. They wake us up, they're yelling, they're so excited. They're, they're screaming, shaking our beds. They're like, wake up, pack a flashlight, pack enough clothes for three days. And they put us on a bus and send us off to Arkansas. And so, yeah. <laughs> so we get to Arkansas and apparently this camp owns a piece of property with a cave on it. Now, when I hear we're going to camp in a cave, my, my mind is like, okay, it's a camp that says we're going cave diving. Really, it's gonna be like a hill with an indention in the hill and we're gonna like camp under it. I couldn't have been more wrong. We get there and the first thing that we do when we get off the bus is they strap us off with all this safety equipment. We got this headlamp on and, and harnesses and a helmet and it's, it's intense. And then we go up to this mountain and it's a legitimate like huge cave opening. We walk inside and it goes about 50 yards in. I'm like, okay, this was actually a pretty impressive cave. But again, the wall that we hit 50 yards in wasn't the end of the cave, it was just the opening. On this cave wall 50 yards in, there's a little metal door. It looks like a, like a safe door or like a, a vault almost. And our guide stops and he says, this is called the cereal box. It's the only way to get into the cave. We laughed because we're like, it is physically impossible for my 210 pound butt to get through that cereal box door. They called it the cereal box because it's about the size of a cereal box. We're, we're like, you are kidding. He wasn't kidding. He unlocks it, opens it up, and he crawls through first. He's a little guy, it took him like a minute. Then it's our turn. And I have to crawl through this hole, and it took me at least 10 minutes just to get through this one little door. And you had to do it exactly the way that he told you to do it. You had to put one arm in and kind of push up, and then you had to angle your head in, and then you'd kind of get stuck, and you could maybe turn the right way to get your other shoulder in. And then once you got it up to your elbow, you can push up. I got stuck like three or four times. I didn't like that. I legitimately thought I was gonna die. I'm like half in, half out. I'm like, okay, well, let's create a conversation until I starve to death, because I'm not moving. Sorry, guys back there, because you're getting the tail end of things, so I'm sorry, but I'm like, I'm gonna die here. Nevertheless, he calmed me down, I got through the cave, and then we're in the cave. And it's this beautiful cave, it's, huge. it's quiet, it's dark, there's no noise or light from the outside world. There's a creek that's running through and kind of carving on the rocks, and 
Some parts of the cave are as big as almost this worship center, which is super tall, and it's, it's amazing. We're walking for a couple hours, and we get to what, I, again, I assume is the end of the cave. Again, I was wrong. It's this wall, this massive wall that goes from the bottom of the cave all the way to the very top of the cave, except for one little sliver of space between the floor and this rock wall. Like maybe a foot of space, maybe. And again, he says the only way to get past this point is to crawl under this rock. I didn't think it was possible. He showed us that it was. He crawled, and after about five minutes, he yells from the other side. It's like a whisper. It's like, all right, guys, I'm the next person, because we can't even hear him. And so we start crawling through. When it's my turn, I get on my belly and I start to crawl through and I realize the first thing I realize, it was such a small space that I can't fit my head in like this. In order for me to go into this cave, I have to turn my head sideways and start crawling like this. So I'm on my belly and I start crawling through and I inch my way forward until my entire body is under this rock. Now you gotta picture it. I'm not like under a rock army crawling. I am sandwiched between this rock and the floor. One side of my face is scraping up against the floor. One side is hitting up on the rock. My feet are angled out like a penguin because I can't put my feet on there. I have to do like this. I'm sprawled out. I can't move my arms. I'm crawling. Guys, I normally do really good in tense situations. I prefer it even. It's fun to me. I did not like this moment. I began to panic. I began to lose it. I can't move forward. I can't move backward. I can't see where I'm going. One, because it's dark. Two, because my head is sideways. I can't breathe. My chest, my ribs feel like they're caving in. I am freaking out. It took a few minutes, but he kind of, Sawyer, Sawyer, calm down, calm down, just listen to me, calm down. Eventually, he calmed down enough to where I could kind of crawl out, and I get to the other side of the cave, and I can stand up, and I can move my neck, and and I can move my arms, and my feet are good, and I'm kind of walking like this for the next 10 minutes, but I can at least stand, and it's the first time that in the last 20 minutes or so, my lungs can actually expand enough to breathe. I was more relieved than I can even tell you, because under that cave, I felt so compressed so suffocated that I began to lose my ability to operate, to think, to speak, to move. And once you get a little bit of breathing room, it's magical. That's the power when you feel suffocated by something and then all of a sudden you're relieved to the point of breathing. That's the power of a little bit of breathing room. And I think in here, some of us today need a little bit of breathing room. Just like I was under that cave, we feel suffocated. We feel trapped. We feel overwhelmed with the stresses of life. And when we feel that way, sometimes we lose the ability to operate. That's why we're in this new series today, Breathing Room. We're gonna find out today how we can operate, how we can breathe when the world feels like we are suffocating. And in this series, we're gonna talk through what to do when everything is collapsing in. If you're here today, we have something in common. In the past year, In the past months, in the past days, maybe in the past hours, you have experienced something where life has made you feel stressed, pressed, and overwhelmed. And the funny thing is, it's probably from different circumstances for each of us. Some of us were people pleasers, and we're overwhelmed because right now we feel like we can't make anyone happy, and we go out of our way to try to make someone's day, and out of our way to try to prove to them that that we love them, but, but it's just, it's kind of this weight on our shoulders, For some of us, it's unmet expectations, expectations that I've put on myself, expectations that others have put on me. Maybe if you're here, you feel like like you're just juggling too many things. That's my habit. I say yes to too many things. This is my eighth speaking engagement in the past seven days. I love speaking. It's a ton of fun. But I'm going to tell you that my past seven days have been a little overwhelming. And so maybe if you're like me, you're like, you feel like your life is just like this ongoing list of unchecked to-do boxes. 
But I think most of us, if not all of us, either right now or have at one point felt suffocated by life. So we gotta figure out how to get some breathing room. So the truth is when you feel that way, we have this tendency to start abandoning, abandoning things, abandoning the people that we love. We give up on relationships. We just no longer focus on pursuing relationships and, and helping others. We give up on our morals. We start doing the wrong things and turning back to sin. Some, some sins that we've already conquered, we start living them again. We start giving up on who we were, like in that cave. No longer was I this adventurous and brave and strong and handsome and funny and incredible young man. Why, why'd y'all laugh so hard at that? No, no, seriously though, in that moment I lost, I, I, I was no longer confident in who I was and what I could do. Because when you feel pressed by life, sometimes you kind of get to this point where, you, I don't know, I think we operate differently, but some people give up on themselves, on their morals, maybe even on God. And it wasn't until I learned how to operate in that moment, under that pressure, that I could come back to the point where I'm striving, where I'm thriving, where I'm living for God and, and, and get back to the point where we can operate. And that's what we're gonna focus on today. Now, in this series, in Breathing Room, we are gonna specifically focus over the next couple weeks in Philippians 4. Philippians 4 is really, really cool for this topic because Paul, when he's writing Philippians 4, is experiencing that suffocation that I'm talking about, that we all feel from time to time. He's in prison, fearing for his life. He's suffocating from the chaos of his life, and he's writing this letter. And so we're going to focus on this letter in Philippians 4. Now, before we get into it, I want to give some context about what's going up. First of all, it's Paul. If you don't know who Paul is, Paul is one of the most influential Christians to ever live. Aside from Jesus, he's maybe the most. He wrote more than half of the New Testament. In fact, if I asked everyone in here for their favorite Bible verse, most of you would probably give me something that was written by Paul. He is crazy influential. And in this moment, he's writing a letter to a church, a group of people in the city of Philippi. Philippi is modern day Greece, but at the time it's his church in Philippi, and this church is a special group to Paul. He's very close with them. Some of his best friends are in Philippi and they've been blessing him financially. It's a big deal to Paul. They've been helping him out. They've been supporting him because this church is not a rich church. In fact, they're exceptionally poor and yet they've still been supporting and encouraging Paul. And so in this letter, Paul is writing them and they're finding out for the first time that their spiritual leader, their guide is in prison. They're scared, they're confused, they're in the unknown. They don't know what's gonna happen, how it's gonna turn out. So Paul is writing this letter to encourage them and lead them. Meanwhile, let's go back to Paul's perspective. In his mind, these might be his last words ever. In this Roman prison, it's not like he's just waiting for a sentence to end. He doesn't know if he's gonna live through the night. And yet still, Paul is writing this letter to encourage people. I think that's funny. Because it's one thing to struggle. It's another thing to struggle while people are looking up to you. If you're a parent, you know the feeling. You're stressed at work. Your marriage is hanging on by a thread. Your finances are tight. And then... Your kids are coming to you and they think that you're the perfect person in the world and they need help with their math homework. You're like, I, don't even, I didn't even pass math when I was a kid. How am I supposed to pass it now? <laughs> Paul's experiencing that. He's already had to deal with shipwrecks and beatings. He's in prison fearing for his life. Now he's having to lead and encourage these people. And so he's feeling suffocated. And he needs a little breathing room. And today he's gonna show us, he encourages us to keep on fighting. If I was in his situation, I can, only, I can only hope that I handled it half as well as he did because he conquered it and he didn't just wait until he was out of the situation to get breathing room. He found breathing room in the moment so that he could keep on thriving. 
It's, better, it's easier said than done, but Paul does it, and he encourages us to do the same thing. So today, let's go ahead and dive into Philippians 4. The first three verses is what I'm gonna be focusing on today. So Philippians 4, one through three. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia, I entreat Sintichi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. We'll break this verse, these verses down as we go, but first I wanna go back to that first verse, just a little bit. We're gonna focus on this phrase right here. He says, he's writing to these guys, he says, stand firm. That's the, that's the, that's the focal point of today, stand firm. The fir- in the first verse, in the first sentence, Paul gives us this command to stand firm. Stand firm when you find yourself in prison. Stand firm when your relationships are falling apart. Stand firm when you lose your job. Stand firm when gas prices are $7 a gallon. Stand firm when your friends and family are so divided because of political views. Stand firm when you feel suffocated by life. Now, what does Paul say? What what does this mean? What does stand firm mean? When I hear this phrase, stand firm, my my first instinct is to think of physical strength. Like, I don't know why, but when I hear stand firm, my first thought goes to Shaquille O'Neal just posting dudes up in the post. That dude is firm. You can't move him. It couldn't take, it it was six of us. It would take us to even flinch him an inch. So that's my picture. Like, is that, was that what Paul is saying? Like, be strong? It's not a bad thing to be physically strong, but this is not what Paul is talking about. And that's a good thing too, because I know some of the strongest men in my life have been humbled to their knees and in tears because their situation in life can't be conquered with physical strength. So he's not, he's not referencing physical strength. Even King David, the guy who slayed Goliath and fought lions and bears, knew that it wasn't about physical strength. Look at what David says in Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail, my, my physical strength is gonna fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. King David and Paul both knew that, that this stand firm command isn't about physical strength. Go back to, to Philippians 1. So it says, stand firm in my strength, in my situation, no, in the Lord. Paul is not referencing his physical stance, he's talking about our spiritual stature. Paul is saying, you will find yourself in situations in life where you are weak, where you are tired, where you are anxious, where you are stressed, where you feel alone, where your resources have gone, your health is down, that doesn't take away your ability to stand firm because your, your ability to stand firm is not in your physical stance, it's in your spiritual stature. Remember, Paul's in prison. If he is telling us to stand firm based off of physical strength, this dude would be demolished. He'd be so discouraged but he's not doing that. And here's the problem, I see way too many Christians give up on their faith when the going gets tough. Why is that? It's because I think we, we even if we don't think this out loud, subconsciously we have this, this understanding that, that strength and, and our ability to stand firm comes from our flesh. We find comfort in our finances. We find confidence in our plans. But what happens when those things fail you? Those things are great. The Lord calls us to be good stewards of our finances. He calls us to prioritize and it's good to be organized. He calls us to have relationships, but what happens when those things fail you? Because it's failed Paul right here. You gotta be able to stand firm in the Lord. See, instead of trying to stand firm in an unstable world, I think we've got to stand firm in an immovable God. 
I like how Jesus says it in John 16, 33. He said, I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. Not in the world, not in your job, not in your relationships. Those things are great and those things are bonuses, but in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. You're gonna have trials and tribulations in this world. Your relationships are going to fail you sometimes. But God doesn't change. Think about a couple years ago, COVID-19 happened. Everyone's life changed. Everyone's. God never changed once. I know a lot of people that were miserable in that time, and I had seasons of that too. I've never been to therapy in my life. I had to start going to therapy during COVID because I couldn't operate. But then I realized, hold on, even in my inability to move and breathe and think clearly right now and have these friends that I want and go to Disneyland, I got my God who hasn't changed once. I got everything I need. Because in the world, I'm gonna have tribulation, but I got peace in my God and my God has overcome the world. Take heart, I have overcome the world. You wanna be able to stand firm, it's only possible in the Lord. So what, so how do we do it? Because, you know, I don't wanna be one of those preachers that's like, hey, the Bible says to stand firm, good luck. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's a little, it's, it's, I need some clarity here. So what does Paul do? Paul, Paul does three things that we can take advice from. The first thing that Paul does in order to be able to stand firm, how do we stand firm in the Lord? The first thing Paul does is he knows that his identity is in the Lord. Let's think about if we were in Paul's situation. How many of us would start comparing it to what everyone else is going through or maybe what we used to have? Maybe even just the, the church that he's writing to in Philippi. You start like, why do they need leadership right now? They're the ones, they're free, I'm not. They're safe, I'm not. They're comfortable, I'm not. Like if I'm, I'm probably more concerned about my situation and how am I gonna get out of prison and where am I gonna get food from, but Paul's not doing that, does he? Paul doesn't give up on his relationships or on his responsibilities. He really doesn't even change the way that he views other people. Look at what he says back in Philippians 4.1. He says, my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown. Does that sound like someone who's jealous of what they're going through? You think Paul is sitting here pouting, comparing to what Philippi, what they have in their, their cushiony lives? No, Paul doesn't seem, his view on others and his view even on himself doesn't seem to change. How is that possible? Because Paul understands that his identity is not founded in his situation on this earth. Look at how Philippians 4, 1 through 3 ends. He says with this little phrase, He's talking about their names are written in the book of life. He's finding connection to people with the fact that they also are brothers and sisters in Christ and we are all gonna end up in the same place and I'm not gonna focus on my current situation. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna live for my destination. Paul has this identity found in God because he is not worried and identified by his physical situation He's focused on his destination. He knows that he's not here for himself. He's not here for comfort. He's not here for money. If he gets those things, great. But his identity is found in the fact that he is a citizen of heaven. Look at what Paul says just a couple chapters earlier in Philippians 1. Thank you, yeah. I get passionate about this stuff, so I'm gonna talk today, okay? So if I just keep going, you can clap, but I'm gonna keep going. Okay, Philippians 1.27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side. Keep that verse up there for a second because I think this is really, really cool. 
What is Paul saying? He's reminding them and himself. I think Paul's speaking to himself a little bit. I'm gonna speak to myself too. I think that's why I'm passionate about it because I, I need to hear this too. He's speaking to himself and to these people. He's reminding them, your identity shouldn't be in your situation. You don't lose fear because I'm in prison. You should live boldly because you have everything you need in God because that's who you are. You are a son or a daughter of the living king. He actually even says right here, it says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Greek, that actually directly, that phrase directly translates to live as citizens. So he's actually saying live as citizens worthy of the gospel. He's reminding them, you're a citizen of heaven, not of earth. I see way too many Christians living as if they are citizens of earth. They're living like this is the life that matters. They're living like everything, like it's, it's, it's all in for this life. No, 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 you're a citizen of heaven. Scripture says the moment that we receive Jesus and that we're forgiven for our sins, we are no longer citizens of this earth. We become citizens of heaven. We are currently sojourners on this earth, living here temporarily with a job, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our identity is in God. And too many people lose confidence in the ability to operate because we think that when our life fails, so do we. You take every single thing away from me in this world, I still have everything I need because I'm a citizen of heaven, not of earth. And Paul remembers that. He's acknowledging the fact that his identity is in heaven because his identity is not in his situation, but in his destination. That's so powerful. I know a lot of people right now are dealing with the stress and chaos of losing their friends. If you're here and you were excited about what happened on Friday with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, you probably have a lot of people that are very upset with you and very mad at you. I know Crossroads, we posted something that got a lot of hate comments on there. If you're here and you are against what happened on Friday, you probably have a lot of people who hate you and are mad at you right now. I wanna let you guys know that it goes both ways. That both people are mad and both people are being hurt. Let me ask you this. In fact, I'm actually not gonna ask you what your opinion on that matter is, but I am gonna ask you this. Did your opinion on that matter change the way that you treated people who disagreed with you? Does it dictate how you talk to them, how you speak to them? Does it dictate how you post on social media? What's your point for posting on social media? Is it to put someone else's opinion down or is it to genuinely ask the question, what would God say about this? What's your motivation behind having that opinion? I know how easy it is to create an opinion that I wanna believe and then I go Google a Bible verse that tries to support it and I take it completely out of context and just post it. We all got Google, I know how it works. But are you, are you doing that or are you asking God, hey, hey, what does your word say about it, God? Because my identity is not as an American. It's not as a Republican or a Democrat. My identity is in the Lord. I also wanna challenge you to remember that as we are navigating through this season right now, let's be empathetic. Let's love the people who disagree with us. I personally see in the Bible proof that God stands for life. He formed us in the womb. He knew us before we were even conceived. He has a plan for every single human being, babies included. That being said, that doesn't justify the fact that we go and we call the people who are aborting their babies murderers. They might not have never heard this truth. They might have never experienced the love of God. They might be terrified for life. Doesn't justify their actions. But you know what also doesn't justify? It doesn't justify us going in their face and saying, you murderer, you evil person, you're gonna go to hell for that. No, what would Jesus do? I believe that Jesus would stand for life, but he would also go and love and serve and seek out the people who are disagreeing with him on the subject. And it's so much easier to do that when you know that your identity is in heaven. 
I had some other stuff I wanted to say about that, but I'm gonna actually skip forward because I want us to understand this. I, I think rather than me trying to make a point and trying to convince you further that, that we should stand this way or that way on political views, I think you should really just focus on the fact that you are a child of God and so are they. Even if they don't know it, even if they haven't received it, God loves that person and wants that person to be saved. What if the only reason that they haven't experienced God's love is because you refuse to show it to them? What if you're the only avenue into church that they have and you're too busy saying that they're gonna go to hell and calling them a murderer? So maybe our identity shouldn't be in trying to make a political stance. Maybe it should be in the fact that we are a child of God and so are they. Okay. Second thing that Paul does, he finds his purpose in God. He finds his purpose. Once you find your identity, you can find your purpose. I think this is one of the biggest ways that Paul was able to succeed when he's facing his trials and he's stuck in prison. Look at what he does. Look at look how he refers to these people that he's writing to. He's referring to, in Philippians 4, he's referring to um, Euodia and Sintichi. By the way, real quick, if anyone's here and looking for cute child names, Euodia and Sintichi, they're, they're available to you. Can you... <laughs> Can you picture like a third grade teacher like Sintichi? Can you spell that for me? C, is it a C? Y, really? Okay. I just think that's funny. Okay, but, he, but look how he refers to them. Go on to the next slide. He refers to them as true companions. These Philippians and these women, he's referring to them as true companions. Why? Because they have fought side by side with me in the gospel. He's remembering these aren't just distant people. These aren't just people looking up to me. These are my true companions. We are sharing a mission. We are sharing a purpose. I see too many people who think that their purpose has to do with their job or their title. What happens when you lose your job or your title? What happens if you're here and you're a girl and you think that your only purpose in life is to be a mother and you can't wait to be a mother and then you get married and you realize that you're infertile? Does that mean that you have no purpose? What happens if you're here and you think that your purpose has to do with your job and the money that you make so that you can bless others, and what happens when you lose your job? Do you have no purpose? What happens for me when I think that my purpose is to speak on stage? That's not my purpose. What happens if I lose my job? Do I have no purpose? No, my purpose is not in my job. That's a way that I live out my purpose. My purpose is to spread the gospel. He says they fought side by side with me in the gospel. Paul remembers that his purpose and these people's purpose is to represent God and to spread his word. What is our purpose as Christians? Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. I love that verse because it says that every single thing that I do, every single thing that I have is for God. That's my purpose is to give him glory for that. If I'm rich and love my job, I'm gonna do that for God. If I'm poor and work in the midnight shift at McDonald's, I'm gonna do that for God. If I'm married, if I'm single, if I'm sick, if I'm healthy, I'm gonna live for God because my purpose is not dictated by my physical stance, it's dictated by my spiritual stature. And my spiritual stature is I'm gonna find a way to live out my purpose no matter what I go through. I love what First Peter says, First Peter 1, 6 through 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Keep that verse up there for a second. What is Peter saying? First of all, he's saying that the genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold. It's more precious than your money. It's more precious than your job. It's more precious than your earthly status. God cares more about your genuine faith than any of it. You can't, by the way, you're missing what's most valuable to you if you don't know that your identity is in God. So gotta have your identity in God and then you get to understand that you have genuine faith which is more valuable than gold. He's saying that trials 
are an opportunity to prove your faith is genuine. When I go through something, that's one of the hardest questions I have to answer as a pastor. Why do bad things happen? Pastorally, that's really hard because I have to look at someone and, and tell them, one, I don't, I don't know why this happened to you. And two, you know what? There's silver lining it. So it's really hard to answer to someone who is struggling. But theologically, I got the answer right here. It's so that we can prove to God that our faith is genuine and God cares more about your genuine faith than anything else. So it says rejoicing trials. But then, then th- this is the coolest part to me. So that God gets the glory. I think this is the part that, that people forget, even as Christians. Some of us will obey and we'll pursue God and we'll serve others and then we think, it's like, okay, God, what do I get for that? Jesus is like, you're missing the point. It's not about you. It's about glorifying God. Your purpose is to glorify God. If you're in prison, you don't lose your purpose. You can still live it out by glorifying God, by writing these letters, by encouraging others, by living for me, by saying that you're content, which we'll hear later on in this series. You lose your job. You lose your wealth. You lose your relationships. You lose your health. You still have purpose. When you know your purpose, you are able to thrive in any situation. By the way, when you live out your purpose, it's fueling. Talking about breathing room, talking about how to find breathing room. You're like, how can I live out my purpose when I don't even have enough breathing room to live out my purpose? Live out your purpose, then you find the breathing room. It's, it's not the other way around. Too many people are like, no, I'm not gonna serve God until I have enough time, then I'll serve God. No, you make time, then you get the breathing room. Like you serve God, then you get the breathing room. I've got a team that serves me on Tuesday nights. There's some of my team right there. <laughs> They're students, I'm running out of time, so I gotta hurry. They're students, a lot of them, they have full-time jobs, a lot of them, they're married, they're single, some of them are single parents. They'll come to service, they're stressed out, they're overwhelmed with life, we have this pre-service huddle, it's usually pretty dead. I have to work really hard to get them excited and get it amped up. Because it's like, okay, I'm, I'm all overwhelmed and you're asking me to come be with these high school students, that's not super relaxing. <laughs> then we have this post-service huddle. They do it anyway because they know their purpose is to glorify God and to build his kingdom, so they do it anyway. Then we have this post-service huddle. And after this, this service, this, this huddle's optional. They don't have to come if they don't want to. It's late at night. They've already been here for three hours trying to connect with these antisocial high school students. So you'd think that they just wanna go home and relax. That huddle is significantly better. They come in laughing. They're sharing wins. They're giving feedback. They're praying over each other. They're talking about what we can do better next week and what we can do different. I usually have to cut that huddle off because we're there for so long. Why? Because when you live out your purpose, it's fueling. Even when you feel suffocated, it gives you breathing room. You want to get some breathing room in this life? Start serving God. Start finding a way to live out your purpose in your job, in your family, whatever it is. Last one, and then I'll close out. Paul knows his identity is in God. He knows his purpose is in God. And then he follows his path in God. This is one that I see Christians struggle with. When the going gets tough, we have a tendency to lose our sense of direction, to fade outside of God's design, and we start living in sin. During COVID, alcohol sales went up by 17%. Why? Because when going gets tough, let's just numb the pain. Who cares what God says? During COVID, the leading porn site saw an increase of 61% of traffic. Why? Because when they go get stuff, let's numb the pain with something. Who cares if it's sinful? No, a real Christian will find a real Christian who's, by the way, standing firm. I'm not saying that if you struggle with those things, you're not a real Christian. I'm saying a real Christian who's living out their call to stand firm in the Lord will find an opportunity to do the right thing in any situation. One of my favorite phrases on this earth is live by principle and not by pressure. You're gonna face some pressure in this world. Are you gonna stumble under that pressure or are you gonna stand by your principles? Are you gonna choose, choose right now to do the right thing ahead of time so that at the time you will do the right thing no matter what pressure you face. And God says that only then can we experience the strength that we need. Luke 6, 46 through 49. 
Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? How many people are like, God, I need you. I need your help. I need money. I need this. And then he's like, sweet, just follow my commandments. And they're like, no. Why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you to do? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. A lot of people hear this verse and like, sweet, I just need Jesus in my life and everything's gonna figure it out. Jesus is the source, but you still gotta build your house on that foundation. How many of you see the rock and then it's like, okay, but I'm gonna build my house over here? How many of us know that God is here for us and we've received him and yet we refuse to follow his commands? What is Paul doing? Paul's living in obedience. When God called Saul to change and live a life of Paul, did Saul, was he like, no, I'll take the name change, but I'm gonna do my own thing. No, he had to live in obedience and go and do what was uncomfortable and now we know him as one of the most influential Christian leaders ever. When he was risking his life to spread the gospel and he started to take all these beatings and these shipwrecks and he was faced with imprisonment, did he start to disobey and be like, okay, God, I've done it this far, am I good now? No, he continued on. I know so many Christians that wonder why, why can't, why does my life feel like it's everywhere? Let me tell you something, sometimes life happens and no matter how firm you are in the Lord, life is going to hit you hard. But if you wanna be able to stand firm in that moment, if you wanna find the breathing room in the chaos, you've gotta stand firm in God. You've gotta have your identity in the Lord. You've gotta find your purpose in God, which is available to you everywhere. And then you've gotta obey. God called me to be a pastor. You know, according to a study in 2017, they did a study across America to find out the biggest fears, of the most common fears. It wasn't sharks or snakes or spiders, it was public speaking. And even for a pastor, it gets uncomfortable. I'm not gonna lie, I was stressing a little bit today because I knew how many people are probably gonna come and, and, and be ready to either cheer when I say one thing about the overturning of Roe v. Wade or, or boo. And so I'm, I'm getting a little overwhelmed, overstressed about it. And, and, and sometimes I'm up here thinking, does my message make sense? Do they think I'm funny? Is my fly down? I'm like over, I'm like, what, what's going on? And it gets uncomfortable. So it'd be a lot easier if I went up and sat in one of those seats and just propped my feet back and had my notes and spoke from there. I wouldn't be a very good pastor, would I? Sometimes you've gotta obey the call that God gives you to go and speak publicly and boldly and live out that calling. And not everyone is called to be a pastor to speak from stage, but God calls us all to obey his commands. And some of us are wondering, God, why aren't you blessing me? Why am I not here with you? God's asking, why aren't you obeying me? I've got something worth it for you if you will just overlook your fear. Paul, even in 2 Timothy says, he didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So I'm not here to obey my fear. I'm here to obey my God, who according to John 16, 33, has overcome the world. So maybe it's time for me to get help for my alcoholism. Maybe it's time for my wife and I to go to couples therapy. Maybe it's time that I started talking to someone about my secret sin that I've been hiding for so long because I refuse to live in fear and shame. I'm gonna live in obedience to God and only then do you have the ability to stand firm. Paul found breathing room in prison. It's not once you get out, it's while you're in it. When I was under that rock, man, it was so nice once I got to the other side, but I didn't get to the other side magically. I got to the other side because I was able to find breathing room under that rock, even while the pressure's on me, even, even while I can't see and I'm turned like this. If you wanna be able to get through this and thrive, you've gotta find breathing room now. By the way, I had to turn around and go back out the next morning. 
There's only one way in, one way out. You might be in a comfortable situation now. What happens if COVID happens again? What happens if life hits next week? Are you ready for it? You've gotta be able to find breathing room and it's available to you in your identity in the Lord, in your purpose in the Lord, and in your path that God has for you. And today I wanna end by offering that to anyone in here who doesn't have it. If you're here and you're already a Christian, for some of you, your next step today is to say yes to the obedience part. You've said yes to your identity and you haven't been living in it. You know what your purpose, but you haven't been following it. Maybe your next step today is to live in obedience. If you're here today and you don't have that identity, it's available to you. God doesn't say, get to the other side and then I'll give you the identity. He says, I have it for you right now. All you have to do is say yes to it, to receive it and then walk in it. And you might be here and you might be confused about what to believe about Roe v. Wade. You might be confused about, about what do I do if I don't really trust that God is, is good. Jesus says this, taste and see that it's good. Come to me, all you who are weary. I will lighten your burden. Jesus says that. So I don't care if you're here and you're pro-life or pro-choice. I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. I don't care what your skin color is. I don't care what your socioeconomic status is. God loves you. He has an identity for you. And it will give you the breathing room that you need even though life feels like it's suffocating you to death. So with that being said, I wanna offer it to you today. So will everyone go ahead and bow their heads and close their eyes and I wanna, I wanna lead us in a prayer today. No one's looking around. I want you to just be here with me in this moment. If you're here today and you need that breathing room, you need the identity that God has for you, right now you're gonna get a chance to say yes. You might have hesitations, you might have questions, we'll help you answer those later, but right now it's to be bold and just say, all right, God, yes. And I'm gonna lead you in this prayer. And if that's you and you're ready to say yes to God, to be forgiven for your sins, to have that identity and that ability to thrive in life, I want you to say this prayer with me. You can say it out loud, you say it under your breath, I just want you to mean it. God says that when we confess with our mouth that he is Lord and believe it on our heart, we are saved. So if that's you and you're ready to say this prayer with me, repeat after me. Say, God, I need you. Give me an identity that cannot be taken from me. Help me to stand firm while living in an unstable world. Give me purpose no matter where I go. Give me direction and help me to follow it. I ask that you forgive me for my sins and heal me from my hurt. I give you my life. I love you. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen and amen. Can we give it up for anyone who said that prayer today? Let me tell you something. Your name is written in the book of life. Paul would call you a true companion. Even if you're like, no, I'm not. I'm not living for the Lord yet. Yet. God offers us not only salvation from our sin, but freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom from shame. Freedom from addiction. Healing from our hurt. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we are a new creation in him and you just received that.